Well, today we're going to be looking at a story that is actually quite familiar to you, I'm guessing, if you've grown up in the church at all. It's about two characters. They could not be more opposite to each other in the conditions of life. I love that picture that Carol came up with. But that kind of summarizes who we're talking about. you know who that is? Sure you do. On the one hand, there's the man who seems to possess everything, except a name. Don't know who he is. He's not named. We're never told the guy what his name was. And on the other hand, there is this Lazarus guy who seems to possess nothing <laughs> except a name. Well, this first fellow is more than he knows what to do with rich. And Lazarus, on the other hand, doesn't know where his next meal is coming from, poor. Well, we're told that the rich guy, routinely dressed in purple and fine linen, you know, all the high-end designer stuff, the only thing we're told about Lazarus' wardrobe is that his body was clothed with festering sores. Yuck! That's not a pretty thought. So for the rich guy, sumptuous feasting was not so much a, an occasional treat as it was a daily occurrence. Take for granted habit. Well, Lazarus' constant hunger gave immeasurable value to any scrap of food that happened to fall from a table. Stark contrast, right? You with me so far, following the story, a familiar one to us. It seemed to be all or nothing, rich or poor, feast or famine. And then suddenly, as our story, our text unfolds for this morning, a moment of dreadful, level the playing field, equity happens to both men. What happens? They both died. Well, this equality lasts for only a moment, though, as the story proceeds. Immediately, the, the story shows the stark contrast of all. you got heaven and you've got Hades. And in death, as in life, there's still no middle ground. In fact, there's such a complete absence of middle ground that the space between the two principal characters, rich guy Lazarus, is described as a chasm. I don't know, you ever seen a chasm? I'm not sure how you define it, other than it's a big space in between something. You can't have much, much less middle ground than a chasm. Well, the reversal of fortunes is reported in our text this morning as a simple matter of fact. I mean, there's no spirit of vengeance in the story. No, I told you so, I've waited, now I get mine and up yours, buddy. Story doesn't some inverted episode of The Apprentice, you know, in which the first person to be thrown out of the boardroom suddenly returns to tell Donald Trump, you're fired! Now, Lazarus is, doesn't even speak from the far side of the chasm. Someone once said, the, the story simply advances the odd proposal that the real stuff of our lives happens after death beyond our lavish eating. I think that's a pretty good observation, actually. So, contrast couldn't be sharper. And this portrayal of the opposites couldn't be more clear. And yet, as I've read this story many, many times over the decades, as I'm sure you have, a parable, I'm struck by the fact that most of our lives, you and me, as we sit here this morning, lend themselves more to varying shades of gray, right, than they do to clearly defined blacks and whites doesn't seem to be the world we live in. 
To be more specific, I suspect that morally and ethically and economically, most of us see ourselves as somewhere in between this self-absorbed opulence of the rich man and the selfless destruction of Lazarus. Now, I think it's safe to assume that while few, if any of us, have wardrobes worthy of a segment of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? I am saying it's equally safe to assume that none of us have to run around naked waiting for the relief package to arrive. And I think it's also safe to assume that few, if any of us, would turn down a car if Oprah offered us one, right, on her show. But it's also safe to assume that we'll manage to survive the fact that we weren't in her audience on the day that she gave out the cars. And I think it's safe to assume that while few, if any of us, are inclined to, to sell everything we have and give the proceeds to the poor, it's equally safe to assume that most of us here this morning, those here at Zion, we're a very generous group, a very thoughtful group. We care about our community. It's safe to assume that most of us contribute to the church and other charitable organizations to some degree, right? Just as our means allow. So what all of this suggests is that even if we are willing to look for ourselves in this story, place ourselves in this story of the rich man and Lazarus, we may be a bit reluctant to identify with either the principal characters, the rich guy or Lazarus. Well, I'm not really the rich guy, and I'm not Lazarus. Well, what am I? So it raises the question that in the shades of gray worlds such as ours, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to use the resources we do have or don't have? How much will be enough to please God, to please our neighbors, to feel good about ourselves, to ensure our place on Abraham's side of the great chasm? Not that that's how we get there, because we don't. It's only through Jesus and his death on the cross, right? Well, in the story, if you remember, uh, rich man asks Lazarus, or Abraham doesn't talk to Lazarus directly. The rich guy says, Abraham... Could you send Lazarus down to my brothers? Let the, give them the message that get your act together, buddy, because this is all real stuff. Now, if, if Lazarus were permitted to go to the rich man's five brothers, as the rich man asked, what specific counsel would he give? Well, actually, the, the Isaiah, our lesson, said this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, who announces salvation. In other words, it's already happening. It doesn't have to be Lazarus going back to the rich guy's brothers. It's already out there. God has laid it out for us in the Bible. But how are we intended to understand the good news in our story for today, in our lesson? You might have noticed that this story, as you've thought about it, hopefully, doesn't offer any specific guidelines. That, that struck me one day. Got, oh, it doesn't say do this or don't do that. It doesn't say do this and, and leave this alone. It doesn't say that anywhere. No specific guidelines or nothing quantifiable of accountability. Well, Old Testament scholar Walter Bergman, he points out that in this today's lesson, it's only a story. It's a story. It's not a blueprint. It's not advice. It's not an urging or, or a scolding. I thought, well, that's interesting. I, I hadn't really thought of it in that fashion, but it's really not. In fact, there's nothing in this story about what we must do. And we're creatures who like to be told, do this or do that. 
I, I think you guys know the proper response, right? Yes, dear. Right? Now, what are we guys supposed to do? There's, there's nothing in the story about liberal or conservative. There's nothing in the story about welfare or the private sector. There's nothing in the story about how to vote or spend or share or say. It's not there. The story doesn't ask anyone to do anything. And that's always made me a little bit uncomfortable because it still resonates with me. I, I, I want to do something. What's the right thing to do? And that kind of gets to the heart of what we're looking at this morning. And that is the story simply observes that we live in a world of haves and have-nots. Is that true? That, yep. We in America are so blessed. We have so many things. I would love to think that every American would say, thank you, Lord, for what we do have. And let me help those who have less. So this, this story allows us to think about economic life from a new perspective. One, how blessed we are. But secondly, how much there is available for us to use what we do have. As though our decisions about wealth and poverty were of eternal significance. That's not going to decide whether we get to heaven or hell. That's in Jesus and him alone, of course. But the power of this story is precisely in its unwillingness to provide us with an easy answer. You want to live as a Christian? It's not necessarily going to be easy. There are very definite things, do this and don't do that, but there's an awful lot where we have to use discretion. But we have to use those principles of life that have been laid out for us. You see, the story doesn't intend for us to narcissistically focus on ourselves, evaluating whether we have satisfied the criteria. Have I done this checklist and this checklist and this checklist? Have I stayed away from that? Have I associated with these folks? Therefore, God, you owe me heaven. Mm -mm. Doesn't cause us, hopefully, to wonder whether we will end up with Father Abraham or some other place. The story doesn't want us to think about ourselves, and that's a big part of where this story goes. It wants us to think about other folks. The story calls us to be aware of how we might act with compassion for those who are hungry, or those who are thirsty, or naked, or hospitalized, or strangers. And one of the things I'm very proud about of Zion Congregation is, is just how much we focus on those things here. We do the prayer shaws, we do the laundromat ministry, we do the Braille or large print ministry. We do funeral dinners. By the way, we could use a few more dishwashers for the funeral dinner folks. How's that for a plug? Is that what you wanted? Okay. We could use a few more of those folks. Uh, we're concerned about Lutheran World Relief, ICA in our local community to help feed the poor. The list goes on and on. I'm so proud of you folks and, and those of us who call ourselves members of Zion. It's a way that we're living out this area of ministry of caring for others, even though we're not told specifically, go join ICA. So how far is enough? Well, we're never told. And that's the point. It's a potentially dangerous question because we can kind of check things off and think, I'm pretty darn good. I'm sure better than that congregation down the street or that Christian across the road or that non-Christian at Perkins this morning having a cup of coffee while I'm sitting here. Well, William Williamson was a, was a pastor and dean of chapel, in fact, at Duke University. And in one of his sermons quite a while ago, he told a story about a young woman named Anne. Now, Anne was a member of his congregation when he was serving in a congregational setting. And after she graduated from college, Anne entered pharmacy school. Okay, honorable profession. But from time to time, she came home and worshipped with her parents, just like 
many of our folks do as they are in school now. It's always good to see them back here, sitting in the pew as they had growing up. Well, one Sunday after a visit home, Pastor Williman received a, a telephone call from Ann's dad. That I said, Pastor, you, you won't believe what's happened. Ann just called us to say she's decided to drop out of pharmacy school. Well, Pastor Williamson asked the obvious question, what on earth is causing her to do such a thing like that? Father said, well, we're not sure. Well, you know, Pastor, Ann respects you an awful lot. And we were just wondering and hoping maybe you could give her a call, talk some sense into her. So Pastor Willeman did that. He made the call. He expected surprise. He shared his observations about all, the, all of her, Ann's obvious hard work and her academic achievements. And he suggested that she you know, really be very careful before throwing all that investment away. And finally, he asked her kind of an obvious question. How'd you come to this decision to drop out of graduate school? Well, her answer was not what he was expecting. The last thing he expected, in fact. She said, you know, Pastor, it was your sermon yesterday. Whoa, ooh, wow, what does that mean? And she said, well, it started me to thinking. You've, you told us in that sermon that God has something important for each of us to do. And he said, yeah, that's true. I agree. I said it, and I meant it. I thought to myself, Ann said, you know, I'm not here in grad school because I want to serve God. She said, when I'm honest with myself, I, I'm here to get a job, to make money, and to look out for myself. Then she said, I remembered that, that one summer, that good summer I spent working with our church mission trip for the kids. And we went to church literacy program. We went to the migrant workers' families and, and helped the kids learning how to read. Oh, she said, that was one of the best days of my life. I felt I was serving God then. Well, after I listened to your sermon yesterday and I thought about those good old days as, as a high school kid going on a servant event, I thought, you know, I want to go back there and give my life to helping those kids. Oh, my. Well, there was a long silence on Pastor Willman's end of the line. And finally said, now, now look, Ann, I was just preaching. <laughs> you know, for us, we say, you do what we say, because we know what we're talking about most of the time. Well, the this, this story of the rich man and Lazarus is only a story. It isn't a punchline that is black and white. So I'm just preaching. I'm telling you what it says and wanting us all, you and me and everybody listening and watching, to, to do a little thinking about what God is calling me to do with the gifts he's given me. Because we all have gifts, every one of us, without exception. When we respond to God's call, how much is enough? How far is enough? What ought I be doing with what I've been given? Opportunities that come before me. How am I doing? It's a question that causes us to reflect. Sometimes that's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we, we kind of gauge ourselves, sometimes feeling good and sometimes not. And that's, that's okay to a point. But if it becomes debilitating, where we're feeling so bad and we feel like such a failure, then that's not good. So this is a balancing act, this tension that we live in as his sons and daughters. Do you remember the movie several years ago, Schindler's List? Yeah. It was a movie based on a real person. And it's set against the backdrop of the Holocaust during World War II. And the movie recounts the saga of how a, a one-time corrupt German war profiteer named Oskar Schindler 
uh, how he undergoes a remarkable moral and ethical metamorphosis and, and ultimately devotes all of his worldly resources, of which he had a lot, to purchasing Jews from the Nazis and thus saving their lives from the ovens and gas chambers. Well, towards the end of the movie, those of you who have seen it, there's this memorable scene in which Schindler first says a general goodbye to those he had saved, and, and then a special goodbye to a fellow, a Jew, named Stern, who had been his bookkeeper during all of this, and who became his friend. Well, earlier in the movie, it had been Stern who had quoted a verse from the Talmud, the, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament Bible. He quoted this section from the Talmud to Schindler, saying, he who saves a single life saves the world entire. Well, that made an impact on Schindler. And now it was Stern who is by his side as Schindler looks around at these hundreds of men, women, and children who owe their lives to him. And just then, quite unexpectedly in the movie, Schindler is overcome by, by an immense wave of guilt and remorse, even though he'd done all this great stuff. And then you see in the movie with his eyes full of tears and almost a spirit of confession, he says, I could have done more. Well, Stern objects and reassuring, you did so much, you did so much. But Schindler wasn't going to be consoled. He says, do you see this ring? I could have sold this ring and saved one more life. And then his eyes drifted over to the automobile in which he was about to depart, saying, do you see that car? I could have saved more lives. And through it all in the movie, there's this haunting refrain, I could have done more. I could have done more. Very poignant moment, right? Well, Stern's right, right, wasn't he? Schindler had done far more than, than you would have expected of him or of most anybody. And yet, Schindler had also come to realize that ultimately, it wasn't Stern's or anyone else's expectations that he had to satisfy. But whose? His own. He had set this standard in this latter part of his life of what he wanted to do and how he could use the gifts entrusted to him. Well, as the example of Oscar Schindler suggests, there's ultimately no way to answer that question of how much is enough of giving, of doing, of sharing, of talking? How much is enough? How much is the right amount? Well, there's not a definite yes and no answer. Instead, I want to suggest that the real message of today's lesson is not about the quantity of what we do, how many things and what kind, but rather about the quality of our attitudes. That's such a driving force. Why am I doing this? Is it to look good in the eyes of people or is it to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for me, for my family, for my country, for my, my community. The quality of our attitude toward those with whom we share God's creation. Bible commentary William Pargley has observed the sin of the rich man was not so much what he had done or failed to do. He really was living life just fine relative to Lazarus. But rather, it was the apathy, the apathy which characterized the rich man's attitude towards character. He didn't care. As Barclay put it, the rich man had not ordered Lazarus to be removed from his gates. He had no objections to Lazarus receiving food that fell from the table. Mm -mm. He didn't kick Lazarus in passing by. He was not deliberately cruel to Lazarus. The sin of the rich man, Barclay says, 
was that he never noticed Lazarus. Hmm. That he could look on the world's suffering and needs and feel no answering sword of grief and pity piercing his heart. It was this indifference which characterizes Jesus' description of that great chasm which stood between Lazarus and the rich man. And it's an indifference which continues to separate us, to isolate us, one from another. It was a spirit of love that God chose not to remain at a distance from us, isn't it? But he bridged that chasm between us that sin brings, this holy, perfect God and sinful us. Thankfully, God was not indifferent, but that in a spirit of love, he became one of us. As we're going to say in just a moment in the Nicene Creed, that God became incarnate. That means taking on human flesh. He didn't stay distant. Instead, he sent Jesus into our lives for the single purpose of restoring us to God's good favor. We can't do it, but God himself can and did. And as God did in Jesus, so the message is that you and I are invited in a spirit of love to draw near to all those, rich and poor, old and young, black and white, with whom we share God's creation. Not to make us good, not to earn brownie points, not to say, God, you owe me heaven, but because he's given us heaven. He's given us Jesus, and it's through him that we want to live, enjoy, share what we have, celebrate what we have, what we are. You and I, my friends, as we gather here week in and week out, need each other to encourage ourselves, to say, good job what you're doing, but also, hey, give me a hand on helping some of these folks that need your, God's attention and love, that we use what we have to God's glory and to the good of those around us. May God grant these things to us for Jesus' sake. Amen.